Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio, and I'm Jerry Prokopovich. If a picture is worth a thousand words, sometimes an artifact can be worth 10,000 words. And 50 such artifacts, if my math is correct, should be worth about half a million words. In the hands of Professor Julie L. Holcomb, they are. She uses them to bring to life some of the most important and interesting stories of the Civil War era in a book that is as thought-provoking as it is attractive. It's called Exploring the Civil War Through 50 Historic Treasures. We'll talk with the author tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you, as is most weeks the case, from the third floor of the Brewster Building, Office A320, on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. But not representing the university, not speaking for the university, not speaking for anyone, just myself, and likewise, our guest speaks only for herself tonight, as we always do here. Well, it's good to be back. The last two weeks, we have not had a live show. Last week was the annual This Hallowed Ground Civil War Battlefield Tour. I'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, And the week before, we had a rescheduling. Our our guest for that night had an important uh, Civil War-related task to perform, so he'll be back with us uh, later in the season. Uh, So a lot has gone on in the last two weeks, Uh, all kinds of things. Uh, The baseball team here at ECU won the regular season title in their conference, which was great. On the other hand, they started the conference tournament yesterday by blowing a six-run lead in the eighth inning and losing in extras. So uh, the baseball gives and takes away. But that is not the main news. The main news here at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters and I hope I will be excused for interjecting this once again into our Civil War conversation, was uh, two weeks ago now the graduation of the 
the newest Dr. Prokopovich, my daughter Caroline, who is now a real doctor, not just a PhD like myself or uh, my my uh, uh, younger brother Pete, but a real doctor like my youngest brother Greg, uh, that, who actually can help people. Uh, Caroline is starting a residency in Greenville, South Carolina, and uh, I know I've mentioned it before, but having attended the ceremony and seen it happen with my own eyes, it, it's uh, a great moment and a, a very long journey for, for her and all of us around her, and we're, we're thrilled. So, uh, another Dr. P in the family. I mentioned last week was Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours' uh, This Hallowed Ground tour through battlefields and other historic sites in Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania. It was, as it always is, a, a really wonderful experience. It was it was great to meet all the people on the tour, among them one loyal listener to this show, and I hope we generated some more listeners. Uh, it was great to see uh, Hal Brooks, the bus driver, who has driven the bus on all but one of the tours that I've done in the last, I don't know, dozen years at least. And I've said this before, he's heard me lecture so many times that if if you could only take one of us on the tour, he'd be the one to take because he could give some pretty good historical commentary, whereas I would drive the bus off a cliff if I were the only one. So uh, I'd rather have him than me if, it just, if we're just one of us. The tour, as always, is just filled with interesting sights um, at Gettysburg. Little Round Top is still closed if you're thinking of going there this summer here in 2024. It's May of 2024 as we speak right now. Uh, the Park Service is still rehabilitating that area and reconfiguring the bus parking so there's room and avoid running over the many people who, who flock there. But we had a wonderful licensed battlefield guide to join us for a morning on the battlefield who gave just a, a really good talk, not one of those that swamped with detail, but but talked about important things and it was very interesting. We went to a lot of hidden gem sites throughout the week. Uh, the Shriver House in Gettysburg that tells the civilian exper experience is one of them. Uh, East Cavalry Field at Gettysburg is, is one of them. The Sailor's Creek, uh, Virginia State Battlefield Park, is another one, a place not many people get to, but absolutely worth the visit if you can uh, make your way out there. And we saw a lot of the iconic sites uh, that, that you can't miss, Burnside's Bridge, we went to the Crater at Petersburg, McLean House at Appomattox Courthouse. While we were at Appomattox, we, had a, a, we listened to a ranger talk from a park service uh, a ranger who gave a, a great talk, and I was happy to point out multiple times uh, that he was himself a uh, East Carolina University alum. He got his master's here more years ago than I can imagine. I would have thought it was three or four, but it's more than ten. Uh, but he did an outstanding job, and uh, overall, I'm, I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Can't wait to go back. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to do one uh, in the fall. I'm also looking forward to the shows coming up here at Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, next week, I'm going to lean over to the bookshelf and pull this book down, give the right title. We'll be talking 
with Peter McCord, who is the co-author, along with Michael Brem Bonner, who's been on the show before. Uh, they have a book called The Union Blockade in the American Civil War, A Reassessment. So we'll get some some new uh, views on how that worked. On June 7th, Allison Johnson joins us to talk about the Left Armed Corps, the veterans whose right arms had been amputated by after suffering war wounds and learned to write with their left hands and wrote about Civil War. On the 14th of June, it'll be time for Civil War Institute. Uh, it may not be too late to sign up yourself if you want to go at Gettysburg College, June 9 through 14. Tell them you are a Civil War talk radio listener, discount code PAR. They'll give you a discount. I'll be presenting there on, I don't know, 13th, 14th, near the end of the, the, the program. And uh, then I'll do a the traditional sort of live show with people I've spoken to over the week and play those uh, interviews for you on June 14th. And we'll finish the season with, as promised earlier, Ty Sedgley, author of Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. And we'll, we'll do that on June 21st. So lots going on as we wrap up the 19th season of Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, as always, you can find out by going what's happening here. Go to www.impedimentsofwar.org. Mark Gaffney maintains the site. And you can show your appreciation for anything you've heard here. As people do on the, 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 the Stephen Ambrose trips, at the end of the trip, people uh, often really like the opportunity to share their show their appreciation for uh, for Hal, our bus driver, for Brian, our tour manager, and for me, uh, for the lectures and conversations over the week with uh, gratuities. Happy to get this. I teach at a state uh, university in the South, so it's not like I'm making the giant bucks. Uh, happy to get uh, the gratuities, and almost everyone gives them. There were a few exceptions this year. People who already donate to the show are, are exempt. They're, they're contributing uh, already. But if the two or three of you who didn't uh, uh, contribute on that last day are listening, I assume you were just short of cash or uh, uh, couldn't find an envelope or didn't know the protocol or something. And the good news is you can go to the website and contribute right there. Click on the PayPal button. Indeed, you don't have to have gone on the trip. All of you can uh, donate to the Civil War Talk Radio Fund for anything, uh, sometimes called the Book Fund, sometimes the Book and Bourbon Fund, uh, sometimes whatever it is I'm interested in that week. It is, like any gratuity, not a charitable donation. It's a, a, just a gesture of thanks for service, but that means you can't deduct it on your taxes. Don't do that. Don't want to get you in trouble. Well, while you're there, it's t-shirt weather. Buy yourself a t-shirt. I don't that's not a pecuniary request on my part. I think I get a dollar if you buy one. Uh, but they tell people that Civil War Talk Radio is out there. You get the handsome image of William T. Sherman with a boombox. And I'll make new T-shirts, design new T-shirts for the fall for our 20th season. Uh, so get these while they're still available. Tonight, we are talking about, uh, speaking of treasures, and those T-shirts certainly are treasures, uh, 
50 Historic Treasures, a book called Exploring the American Civil War Through 50 Historic Treasures. The author is Julie L. Holcomb. She is the director, uh, I'm looking back to make make sure I've got this exactly right, Um, has been uh, director of the Pierce Civil War and Western Art Museums in Corsicana, Texas, uh, now teaches at Baylor University. Uh, Professor Holcomb, are you there? I am here. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you uh, for the invitation. Well, very, very glad to have you, and uh, very glad to have this book in my hand. It is a uh, a really handsome volume uh, published by Roman and Littlefield, who, who do academic work but are not a university press. They're a commercial press, and, and it looks like it. it it's got very... Uh, what do they call them? Boards, the technical word for book covers. Very good hardcover covers and glossy paper throughout. Um, so that all the, the images of the 50 treasures you've selected are beautifully reproduced. Did you have to, to bargain with them to, to get this kind of production? I did not. Uh, this is actually the... Um a series that's uh, produced between uh, Roman and Littlefield um, working with, in partnership with the American Association for State and Local History. So I, I actually um, had a budget for the images. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had an, a, a generous budget. Um, I mean, not a, not a, you know, substantial budget, but it certainly um, made it possible to get the reproduction rights for many of these, um, pay for the reproduction rights for many of these treasures. Um, the the series, if you um, if you go out, there are um, now I think about six or seven books in the exploring um, uh, history through treasures series mm-hmm. that's produced. Um, they started with women's suffrage, of course, my book. Uh, childhood, and there are several other titles, but they all have similar um, high-quality production. You know, really the nice glossy paper, the you know the boards, the the nice hardcover book. They did a really. I'm really happy with uh, the production. Well, it is just a, a, a delight to to hold and and read. The, you mentioned uh, AASLH, American Association of State and Local History, which uh, brings brings to mind your background as a, a public historian. I mentioned you were a museum director. Uh, how did you get to your, your current position? I, I'm always, as, as a former museum person, I'm always interested in the career arc people follow between museums and uh, uh, academia. Well, um, I was a non-traditional student. I, I, I often tell my um, my students, you know, it took me three three attempts to, to finish my bachelor's degree for a variety of reasons. The first two times life intervened in different ways. Um, and as an undergraduate student and finishing, you know, uh, I was getting to the end of my undergraduate program and trying to figure out, you know, what do I, what am I going to do? I've got to figure out what to do with this degree. And I was majoring in history and creative writing and had a conversation with my, um, my history advisor. And he suggested uh, that I 
explore careers and archives and, and museums. And so I had an opportunity to, for the last two years of my undergraduate program, to work at in my university's archives and, and the museum there on campus. And that led to graduate school. I uh, completed a master's degree in library and information science with an emphasis on archives and records management. And I decided to take a break between my master's and my PhD program. And there was a, the opportunity to um, to go to work at, uh, to take this position at the, I was offered a position at Navarro College working with the Pierces who had recently um, donated a collection of Civil War documents and Western art and I would be caring for that collection. And so I spent I, I started there and then decided I really wanted to finish that PhD, so I went back um, to school part-time, working full-time for the, the Pierce Museum and then um, doing doctoral study part-time at the University of Texas at Arlington. And um, after finishing my, or I was still finishing, I was still working on my PhD, but I found myself looking for some new challenges and an opportunity opened up in the museum studies department at Baylor for a full-time teaching position. Mm. So um, I, I switched, I, I, I took that opportunity. Um, I started out as a lecturer and then after I finished my PhD, a couple of years after I finished my PhD, that position became a tenure track position um, and then tenure, and then just recently, actually just this spring, um, promotion to full professor in museum yeah. studies. Well, congratulations on that. That is that is another great landmark, uh, and especially the, the, the road you've been on. The uh, so, you, so you teach museum studies. Do you teach history courses as well as, as public history practical courses? Um, I teach I – teach, I incorporate history into my courses, but my my focus is collections management, mm -hmm. archival management, and then museum ethics. So I get into mm -hmm. so I, I actually bring a lot of the history that I, I research and write comes mm -hmm. in especially in that ethics course because we talk about interpreting difficult subjects in museums. How do you interpret slavery? How do you interpret the history of the um, Civil War? Uh, in, and, in that space, and and that certainly is something that you you tackle head on in this book. Uh, we'll talk about these fifty objects and and figure out uh, and 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 find out how they tell us the story uh, or many stories, I should say, of the Civil War. We're talking tonight with Julie Holcomb. She is the author of Exploring the American Civil War Through Fifty Historic Treasures. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P. O W I C Z G at ECU dot EDU. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Propovich, talking tonight with Julie L. Holcomb, author of Exploring the American Civil War Through 50 Historic Treasures. Last week, uh, my wife Emily was filling out some paperwork to go to a training session over the summer uh, for the school she's working in. And this training agency, one of the questions they asked people was, uh, what would be your one theme song uh, uh, for your life? And she thought about it and correctly wrote, you know, I'm, I'm a grown-up. I've lived more life than can be captured in any one song and you know, couldn't really give an answer. I had proposed you know, the, 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 just put Kung Fu Fighting by Carl Douglas. How, how could that go wrong? But, but I think her answer was probably better. Uh, she could not reduce her life to a single song, nor could many of us. But you, Julie, have reduced the American Civil War to 50 historic treasures. How hard was it to come up with? How, how did you approach this task? It, it was a challenge. Um, I had... Going into this project, I, I did have some parameters that I set for myself. I wanted, uh, I wanted to use objects that readers might not be familiar with. Mm-hmm. So um, one of my colleagues at Baylor, uh, half in jest, said, well, you didn't include um, John Brown's Pike in your book. And I said, well, but that's mm-hmm. because so many other books have John Brown's Pike people can you know read about John Brown's Pike and in those other books I really wanted to highlight smaller um, collections so uh, institutions like the Pierce Civil War Museum where I used to work uh, I wanted to highlight objects that people might not be as familiar with and I wanted I wanted objects or treasures that could that could really tell a story that had the uh, you know that that there was enough I could do enough research with it there was enough known about the provenance um, in you know in the case of artifacts that we knew enough mm-hmm. about the history of the object that I could tell a very full story so you mentioned you know, stories and you do tell stories each artifact I should say tells its story that you relay we learn in, in museum exhibit design 101 about uh, storyline driven exhibits as opposed to object driven exhibits. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
this book seems to me very much storyline driven that you you have stories you want to tell then you've got objects that illustrate it are there any examples where you thought i just need to have this piece in here and i'll figure out a story to tell or did it, did it all go the other way a little bit of both. Um, mm-hmm. So, for example, so the book is um, organized into ten sections, and mm-hmm. one of the sort of one of the the things that I set out for myself in 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 laying out the the book and in thinking about the stories and the objects, I wanted to make sure that, for example, when I tackled the issue of race, of slavery, and race, mm-hmm. and racism, that I didn't relegate those stories to say the section there's a section on emancipation i didn't want to relegate those stories just to emancipate to the section on emancipation same Mm -hmm. thing when i was talking about women i didn't want to focus strictly or have that only in the section on the home front so in thinking about how can i integrate these these lines through the 10 sections of the book I realized in the when I was dealing with a section on officers, for example, that I had, you know, I had Lee, I had Grant, I had Stonewall Jackson, I had Benjamin Butler, mm-hmm. but I, but I, I didn't have um, Martin Delaney, who was the, um, who is the first black officer. Mm-hmm. I didn't include, I didn't have him in there, and so it's like, well, okay, I need to tell that story. Not sure what I'm going to use. I ultimately ended up using a photograph of him, mm-hmm. but so that was an instance where I I knew the story I needed to tell, but I I didn't have the object or the treasure selected beforehand. And and that's not an uncommon thing in in designing any exhibit or or I guess a book of this nature. Um, <clears throat> the the way you have it organized, uh, as you point out, it, it's really thematic. It's not strictly chronological mm-hmm. and as i was reading it i was thinking about discussing it with you and, and some weeks we'll just go through the author's book sort of start to finish because it tells a linear story um this one doesn't but i do want to start with the first object at, at least uh, ask you about that <coughs> excuse me uh it's a a, a bill of of sale uh of for enslaved people mm-hmm. and it it really struck me because you describe in the uh, the interpretation of it how how slave auctions took place and how people reacted. Uh, it reminded me at the the museum I worked in the Lincoln Museum, late lamented Lincoln Museum of Fort Wayne, Indiana, uh, when we were trying to tell the story of slavery to set the context for Abraham Lincoln's story. An initial proposal was used a white study figure of. It would look like Gordon, the, the the often seen photograph of the slave with all the scars on his back. Mm-hmm. And we chose not to do that because it would be gory and distracting. And instead did these figures, life-size fiberglass white study figures of a woman and her child next to the, uh, the artifact was the bill of sale, much as you have here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's more powerful than any you know, physical punishment, the thought of being separated from your family. Uh, I just thought it was a wonderful start to the book to, to, to approach the horror of slavery in that sort of understated but really devastating way. That, that, is, that, that particular treasure and that particular 
chapter is is one of my favorites in the book. It was certainly the most difficult to write in that it was, you know, very it's a very emotional mm-hmm. story to tell, but I I I you know, and I know the image that you're talking about because it's we actually have it in the. Uh, it was an image that we used in the Pierce Civil War Museum of the of the slave with the very uh, Gordon with the the very scarred back. Right. And 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 it can be. While that's an important image, that can be a distraction. And I really wanted I wanted readers to from the first page of this book. I wanted readers to understand, you know, that the imp the um, impact of slavery and how slavery, you know, very much, I'm very unapologetic about this in my book, mm-hmm. uh, that slavery is the cause of the Civil War. And here, you know, here's the human toll, here's the human cost of, of enslavement. In that same section where you're talking about slavery before the war, you also have uh, an image what looks like a, apparently a label that was once on uh, a, a bolt of cotton or, or some other uh, some other yard goods that indicated this was free free labor produced, uh, much as as people may remember from the 20th century, you would see the union label on products. This is a union made object, and if you supported uh, uh, the labor movement, you you would be tempted to buy that and not not another one. You describe how there were groups, they weren't very large, but there were groups that tried to attack slavery economically by promoting free labor produced objects. Uh, where did you come across this story? Can, can you tell us more about it? Well, um, I have, I, that is actually the um, subject, uh, the free produce movement was the subject of my dissertation and the Uh. subject of my second book, Moral Commerce, uh, Mm -hmm. which looks at the role of women, African Americans, and um, Quakers in the boycott of slave labor goods. And so this is a the, uh, the free produce movement has its roots in Quake uh, in the Society of Friends or the Quakers, mm-hmm. who um, in it, it really it goes back to the um, to the 17th century, but really takes gains momentum in the 18th century in a period when Quakers are really rethinking their. Um, their relationship to the market, they're rethinking their relationship to slavery. Of course, in the late 18th century, Quakers come out um, against slavery as as a as a body, as a corporate body, and you know they're um, uh, taking this step, even going so far as disowning um, Quakers who refuse to um, free their slaves, Quakers who are still involved in slavery. But one of John Woolman, who's an 18th century Quaker, was um, one of the early proponents of this and saying it's not just enough, it's not enough to free your slaves. It's not enough to speak out against slavery. You need to completely um, disconnect yourself from the slave labor economy. And by doing and that, you, so that means not benefiting in any way possible from enslaved labor, whether that's goods, whether that's services 
Woolman, uh, when he would travel in the South and he would stay with Quaker families, uh, he would pay, he would attempt to pay for the slave's labor uh, because he did not Mm. want to benefit from from enslaved labor. So in the 18th century, the focus was really on avoiding anything um, to do with, you know, Avoiding slave labor goods, abstaining as much uh, from slave labor goods, as, which, as you can imagine, is a it was a nearly impossible task, and and didn't become any easier in the 19th century. In the 19th century, we begin to see that you, you begin to see the rise of the free produce movement, which is substituting goods, so uh, free labor goods. So, for example. George Taylor, who's a Philadelphia Quaker, and I'm actually working on a biography of Taylor, he um, ran a free labor store in Philadelphia for some 20 years, and he had um, he worked very hard to establish contacts throughout the South, identifying individuals who did not use slave labor to raise cotton. And then setting up establishing free labor gyms that were operated by free labor rather than enslaved labor. Um, so it's very much – it is a Quaker movement, but it also has broader impacts. Um, it also is transatlantic in its focus, focus. So there was a British component as well. And actually uh, in Britain in the 1790s and again in the 1820s, there were major boycotts of slave labor goods, uh, specifically sugar. And, and when you describe how intertwined these slave-produced products were with the economy as a whole, it brings to mind, uh, you know, even today, everyone's aware that there are countries around the world where, where goods are produced in slave-like conditions, and often they make their way into the, the economy of other countries, including the United States, and the, the difficulty of, of not buying the cheapest shoes at Walmart that may have been produced somewhere under bad conditions, uh, it's very hard to do that. Uh, and, and it just shows how you show how hard it was then, uh, and, and it really reflects uh, some contemporary issues as well. Let me ask uh, we're, we're halfway through and haven't got to the war yet. You described, you, you mentioned you, you have sections on officers. Uh, Butler, Stonewall Jackson, Grant, Lee, and so on. Uh, and you talk about the soldiers and units as well, Hood's Texas Brigade, uh, uh, the, the the Iron Brigade of the Army of the Potomac. In the choice of artifacts, I, I thought it was an interesting choice that none of them, if I'm correct, are weapons. There are battle flags, there's a hat, Iron Brigade hat with a bullet piercing, but but no weapons as such. Is that right? And if so, was that a strategic choice? It was a strategic to- uh, choice to not include weapons uh, and the, uh, or any kind of weapons in this. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that, a lot of that came from my experience at the Pierce Civil War Museum. There's, you know, there's certainly, uh, we had a core group of visitors who came to the museum who were really interested in, I want to see the guns, I want to see the weapons. <laughs> um, but what I found in my time there is that that the that 
really that was a small group of individuals. And if you look at books about Civil War material culture, there are a lot of books out there that deal with the weapons of war um, mm-hmm. and uniforms too. I, I don't. That's something else I don't. I talk it's about a little try. bit yeah, about uniforms, but they're not the focus of a chapter. I so I, I that was a conscious choice. I really wanted to expand the scope of the um, objects that I that I presented, and I really wanted stories that would appeal to the broadest audience possible. I felt like weapons, someone can you can find those in other books, and mm-hmm. and really military history. Um, it's not my my expertise, and I didn't feel like. I could really tell that story with any um, degree of authority. Well, it, I mean, it, that makes sense that there are so many books, you know, on those topics, books not, about nothing but weapons. Um, uh, so you have the opportunity here to tell other stories. One thing I noticed, we just have a couple of minutes before we take a break, was at least at the beginning of Western emphasis, you talk about the Battle of Glorieta Pass, uh, the, the massacre at Sand Creek, the uh, the decisions made by the Choctaw and Cherokee and the other uh, the five so-called five civilized tribes as to which way they would go was this also a way to sort of counteract the overwhelming Virginia-centric narrative of the Civil War? Yes, yes, and that was something in my proposal. I I touched on that, and one of the um, you know I. Had indicated that I'd planned to and make uh, you know make sure that I talked about the West as well as you know the the Eastern theater, and uh, one of the reviewers really strongly encouraged me to develop that further and to make sure that I I made sure that there was a very strong Western focus to the book. Well, that that definitely shows up here. Um, the, the you said many of these are. are not things we see everywhere. There are a couple that I would guess most listeners have seen. The uh, the Charleston Mercury mm-hmm. uh, broadside announcing the union is dissolved is one. Um, another one that some people will be familiar with, uh, especially if they've listened to this show, would be the uh, the drawing of the Humiston uh, children, the, mm-hmm. the three children on, on the, the photograph that a dying soldier at Gettysburg had in his possession. Uh, I want to ask you about that, but we're going to take another short break. We'll come back in just a moment and talk more, uh, as about as many as we can of the remaining uh, of the 50 treasures described in the book, Exploring the American Civil War Through 50 Historic Treasures. It's written by our guest tonight, Julie L. Holcomb. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. 
Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Julie L. Holcomb, author of Exploring the American Civil War Through 50 Historic Treasures, uh, one of the treasures that you reproduce in this book, uh, an image of, is the the image of three children uh, based on a, a daguerreotype that a, a Union soldier was holding as he, he died uh, on the streets of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania during the battle. And uh, that, that story has been told many times. So we've had Mark Dunkelman on the show uh, who has written extensively about uh, the Humiston family and Amos Humiston and his regiment. Uh, what what Did you know of this story before you started researching the book? Was this one you thought, we have to get in here? I, I had encountered this. Um, I had encountered this story early on in my research. I, this was um, not my first pick for hmm. telling the story of the northern home front. Um, mm-hmm. The, but the story that I wanted to tell of the Northern Home Front or the, the story that I, I wanted to tell, I didn't really mm-hmm. have – I didn't have a good artifact for that. And so it was – I was looking – you know, searching around, searching to find another story and I came across the story of the Humiston children and decided that, that this would accomplish some of the um, goals that I had for telling this, this story. Uh, it, it, I, I mention it partly because, uh, listeners, you you may recall that the 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 image of the children was reproduced in a newspaper. A, a drawing was made of it, and it was by seeing that drawing that Mrs. Humiston discovered her soldier her soldier husband must have been killed. Mm-hmm. And after the war, she and you describe some of her story, but but she spent some time running the. Uh, was given a position at a national soldiers orphans home in Gettysburg and that building is still there and part of uh, the homestead portion of it is a private home and also a museum the Civil War Tales Museum which I promote relentlessly on this show uh, on this show uh, it has maybe 7000 miniature figures of civil war soldiers made of clay by the uh, proprietors with the one, they're extremely accurate in every detail, except that all the figures are cats and not people. Um, 
it's the craziest place. And we visited that last week. Most of our group was suitably impressed. A few people did not have sufficient whimsy to appreciate it. <laughs> um, but that that's the, the Humiston children uh, are connected to today's Civil War Tales Museum. Mm-hmm. You have another story, uh, well, so many interesting stories. Uh, on the Confederate side, the silk dress balloon. Most mm-hmm. people know about uh, uh, Thaddeus Lowe and his balloons on the peninsula in 1862. But the Confederates tried to put together a balloon. Where Where is this... Uh, and you used a, a fragment of the silk from the balloon. Where is the fragment today that, that you used as an illustration? So this was one of the few instances where I um, used an object or a treasure from a larger institution. The the, fra- the fragment that you're mentioning, you're referencing, mm-hmm. is at the um, Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. Ah. It's in their collections. So, so uh, it, from an aeronautical viewpoint, rather than a Civil War viewpoint, I, I thought it was fascinating that and, and that the you know, Richmond women giving up their silk dresses to create this balloon, which only had one one flight, as far as I can tell. Uh, another interesting story, and, and there are fifty interesting stories to be sure. <laughs> uh, Doc Rayburn, the, uh, ah. the 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 Arkansas guerrilla. Tell Speaking us about of him. silk dresses. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. He, um, that's where I'm going. <laughs> yeah, I figured as much. Yeah. Uh, so I, um, this was an instance where I just, I got lucky um, in the in the story that I found. I was, you know, I knew that again. Okay, so this is home front, and I knew I wanted to. There were. You know, home front, the experience of the home front varied widely, and it depended on geography, it depended on race, it depended on class. Um, and so in thinking about the home front, I most definitely wanted to be sure to include something about guerrilla warfare and the, the experience of the home front in that um, in that environment. And so Doc Rayburn um, that you mentioned is one of the more colorful characters. Um, he was a, um, he did not have the notoriety of Mosby or Quantrill or um, in, as, that we typically mm-hmm. think of. So, you know, uh, someone that um, we, my readers might not be um, familiar with, but he was um he joined the 12th Texas Cavalry uh, in 1861 and then was in Arkansas, which where he was wounded, if I remember correctly. Um, anyway, he ends up his is uh, he ends up being left behind because he's of his of his injuries. And he ends up ultimately to make a long story short, ends up becoming a, a guerrilla fighter. And there's a there's a great story. Um, I'm not sure how much of it's um, true. It's kind of a, a mixture of, of fact and legend. But uh, on one of the more colorful stories about him, he plays Santa Claus to his men, and he goes off and he he's going to get them the the best cavalry horses he can possibly get from the um, from the Union soldiers. And so he dresses up as a woman. He slips through Union lines. He joins a dance hosted by Union officers. And after uh, a, an evening of dancing and merriment. Um, he, uh, you know, he leaves and, um, 
anyway, mounts one of the what you know what he thinks is uh, what he believes is to be one of the the best horses uh, in the group, and manages to stampede all of the Union horses and um, takes them back and delivers them to his men, promise fulfilled. It, it is a, a great story. The One of the things that struck me about it was looking at, at his photograph. Um, mm-hmm. well, well, here's what struck me. If, if you're going to dance, uh, 19th century traditional dancing, old-time dancing, contra-dancing, the origins of what becomes modern Western square dancing, uh, there are separate parts for ladies and gents. Uh, uh and to dance the ladies' part, as opposed to the, to dance either part, you have to have some experience. For a, a for for a man to dance the woman's part, you can't just go out on the floor and do it. You have to have practiced it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and speaking from experience, I've been to dances where there were too many men, so some of us would dance ladies' part, and you have to learn how to go in the opposite direction and so on. So if he fooled those officers for all night. Um, it's not the first time he's danced the ladies' part. Yeah. And then the photograph you have of him is fairly androgynous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I came away thinking, is this a uh, a, a trans woman um, as a Confederate officer? Uh, mm-hmm. To use language he would not comprehend uh, or anyone of his generation. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know that you have an answer. I'm just speculating. But I thought the story was fascinating, and it opened up all kinds of doors for further for further guesswork. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of, there are a number of places where, um, gender roles, um, mm-hmm. and, and I talk about that actually in this chapter because they're, you know, they're, they're in this guerrilla, you know, in the home front in these areas where guerrilla warfare is going on, we see sometimes a, a reversal of gender roles, um, happening, and and we see that see that in other you know other when we look at other areas of Civil War history, um, we look at um, you know what happened in New Orleans with um, Beast Butler, you know mm-hmm. the, the infamous chamber pot with um, Butler's image in it, or or what's um, uh, you know, uh, or uh, there are other interesting gender connections. You know, you were talking about the balloon the, mm-hmm. made from the woman's silk dress. And we have, you know, one of the other objects that I talk about is the, the flag that's made um, right. also from, you know, also made from a woman's dress. In this case, Wigfall's wife, um, you know, the dress, uh, her dress, her wedding dress, no less. And, and you talk about the, uh, the the bread riots in Richmond, but also Atlanta, uh, the, the role women play in the Confederate home front. Let me ask, um, when you started talking about that, that very first uh, artifact in the book, the slave sale document, you said that was one of your favorites. Um, do you have a favorite artifact out of 50? Does it change daily? It does change somewhat from day to day, um, depending on depending on the moment. Um, I would have, I would, I would say there are probably several that probably shift back and forth as favorites. So um, certainly that there's the 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 garotype of the African soldier, African American soldier, and his family. We, we mm-hmm. don't know who the soldier is. Um, 
but I, I love that image, and that's an image that's been reproduced um, several times. Uh, I did. I love the the story of the general. Um, that was actually a nod to my my husband is a model railroader. He loves railroads, <laughs> so I I knew I had to include something. You know, railroads were important, but I it was kind of like right. I have to I have to include this. The Butler Chamber Pot. Uh, that it's not one of the um, the it's not the main object, but the um, flag fragment that uh, this is the chapter on the Iron Brigade. Mm-hmm. So uh, the flag fragment that um, Timothy Webster of the 24th Michigan that he sent home to his wife is also another another personal favorite. In fact, it was one that it was very from the beginning it was on my list that i'm going to find a way i'm going to find a way to include this in the book because uh, i i've written about webster in another place and i i really wanted to include that the webster story is one the one that i really wanted to tell for the northern home front mm-hmm. and just really didn't have a good um a good treasure to tell that story because it's a it's a pretty tragic story. Um, he di- he's killed in at um, Battle of Petersburg, uh, mm-hmm. Battle of Petersburg, and um, you know his wife comes from this horribly dysfunctional family, and with her husband's death, you know she has a hard time getting a pension. Um, and uh, um, and she's thrown back on the mercies of her very dysfunctional family, and mm. just a really tragic story. And that shows how, in museums or in books of this kind, we are, to some extent, beholden to what what the historical record has left us physically in in terms of the stories we can tell, mm-hmm. uh, in a way that reaches an audience that has come to see these things. With just a few minutes left, you mentioned the general, the locomotive, the general that people know from the the story of the great locomotive chase. And when I turned the page and saw that, I said, well, well, that's the biggest artifact in the book. That's a whole locomotive they have in Atlanta there. But I was wrong. Um, Number 50 is the biggest (laughs) artifact in the book. It's the biggest statue in the world, apparently, uh, Stone Mountain in Georgia, and you use that uh, uh, to suggest that, that museums have a responsibility to to participate in the way the war continues to be interpreted. I've, I've given you a huge opening there with only 90 seconds to, to fill it, but uh, where do we stand? And, you know, this is something that we, that you know, I mentioned earlier that I teach museum ethics, and this is something, mm-hmm. as you can imagine, Stone Mountain is certainly something that we talk about in my class. Um, there are no easy answers uh, for what to do with, uh, you know, something like Stone Mountain. Uh, I mean, you can't, you can't. You can't blow it up. <laughs> There's, no. you know, what what do you do with with something like that? And I do think that museums and um, and museum curators, exhibit designers, that we have a role to play, and it's absolutely important that um, that you know those professionals are out there on the front lines, if you will, you know. Making, sh- getting those stories out there and confronting, um, you know, the 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 converse- being part of the conversations that we're having about Confederate monuments, about how we interpret the history of the Civil War. 
And and this book certainly takes steps in that direction. Uh, listeners, you will enjoy this book. I'm enjoying just holding it here. Uh, it's because it's not linear. It's maybe not the first book to introduce someone to the war. But if you're listening to this show, you're more than ready uh, to fully appreciate all the stories in it. Uh, and it's great to look at. Great to look at. Great to read. Uh, great to own. So, listeners, get yourself a copy of Exploring the American Civil War Through 50 Historic Treasures. It is written by our guest tonight, Julie L. Holcomb. Julie, thank you so much for being on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, thank you. I appreciate I appreciate the support of my work, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about talk about these some of these treasures. And listeners, as always, I appreciate you, and thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.